Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and welcome everybody. I'm Gentella Benson. I'm the author of the novel Hope and Glory and head of editorial at Black Ballad. And today I'll be your chair for this event hosted by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Jimmy Famurera. Welcome, Jimmy. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Immaculate uh, pronunciation of my surname. I feel like I have to always say it because I appreciate it each time. No, I mean, we have to represent for the Nigerians in the house. Now, if you don't know Jimmy, Jimmy is a British Nigerian author and broadcaster. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, Wired and more. He's a restaurant critic for The Evening Standard and is a regular guest judge on BBC One series, MasterChef. In 2021, he won Restaurant Writer of the Year at both the Fortnum and Mason Awards and the Guild of Food Writers Awards. And he's also the author of the brilliant new book Settlers Journeys Through the Food, Faith and Culture of Black African London and the research and ideas from settlers will be the subject of our discussion today. Now before we get started just a bit of housekeeping if you're watching along live would love for you to get involved in the live chat please do share your thoughts and comments and if you're on Twitter you can use the hashtag RSA Journeys. But if you haven't already read Settlers, I highly, highly recommend you do. It really is a great book and the research is enlightening and thorough. And it's also just really great to read, which I think is important for a nonfiction book. So I think it's a great time to also be reflecting on Black African London as well, given the increasing influence that the African diaspora is having on British culture, whether that's music, entertainment, food or fashion. And I want to get started by asking you, Jimmy, to walk us through some of the historical events, political decisions and cultural moments that have shaped the culture and community of Black African London as it exists today. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the way you put it is is absolutely right. Like there's um, there's all sorts of different historical moments, I think, which was what I found throughout the course of researching the book and and kind of working on settlers for for quite a long period and delving as far as I could go. Um, I guess primarily I started with my own uh, story, um, my own family's kind of arrival, which was in the early 80s, kind of late 70s, that period. Um, and that, I would say, is tied into the post-war uh, wave, really, that first, well, not first wave, but that really pivotal wave of a lot of um, African overseas students, people from former British colonies. And it was at that time that um, a lot of these nations were on the on the path towards independence. And so, what's really fascinating about that is that there was a big drive there was real encouragement in a similar way to the way that the Windrush generation you know it's really pivotal to note that that they were kind of answering the call that they were coming to to the UK to cities like London to kind of help with a labour shortage and help rebuild the country in a similar way uh, these primarily student uh immigrants that came from countries like Nigeria, Ghana and other places across the continent were, were kind of coming here because they were sort of being invited by bodies like the colonial office uh, to kind of learn how to run these independent countries. And also I just discovered through the course of, of, um, of my research, they're obviously being invited 
in a bid to almost maintain some soft power to kind of maintain influence over these these subjects that are going to be kind of you know leaving the empire really so that's really politically interesting in itself and that's probably at the heart of the story that I look at in settlers because that's the modern history really that that possibly hasn't been scrutinized to the same degree as as Windrush because it's kind of far better established and you know um uh, the Caribbean community were far and away the majority black community in in the UK throughout that post-war period and so that really kind of set the texture of of how a lot of us kind of view like black Britishness and so that was one of the things I wanted to hone in on but the thing I would add to that is that through the course of my research I just found out that there were so many other kind of moments you know there's the um turn of the century early 20th century and kind of uh around the lead up and after the first world war where there was a lot of uh, Somali and East African um seamen generally like in places like Liverpool and the east end of London that were effectively like stranded here and so you know they kind of couldn't really get back home and so they had built up these communities as well and there's a really big sort of interwar community as well in the 1930s of of African immigrants kind of uh you know budding politicians political ag agitators that kind of came to to London musicians thinkers uh and so that is the point that I would make really and it's something that was news to me or that I didn't really appreciate fully until I researched the book is that it's not just about the post-war story, although it's the heart of the book. Hopefully you see those and feel those other historical reverberations. And the running theme really is that um, there was always a reason and a wider context for why African communities were making their home here. Yes, definitely. And I like how, well, I relate personally to when you're talking about your own upbringing as a British Nigerian, um, especially given that so much of Black British culture felt growing up that it was defined by Caribbean culture. So from your experience, what were some of the tensions of being Black British Nigerian? And how is that different to maybe how past generations formed their identities as Nigerians or Africans in the UK? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I really, um, that was one of the key things that I didn't want to shy away from and I wanted to kind of talk about and I, I keep making this point, but I think one of the things that, in, that emboldened me that I could sort of, you know, grasp that quite tricky nettle of looking at um, historic interaction between different black communities in the UK was because I knew that I was heading for a kind of positive endpoint, which is like the position we're in today where I feel like there's such there's so many amazing signs of this um, hybrid kind of black Britishness that kind of takes from, from, from different specific cultures uh, in a really free, positive way. And there's this kind of real galvanized strength that I feel. So I felt like that, that was something that I could, I could delve into the route to that point with the freedom that I knew that it was heading to this place that was, in my opinion, like a broadly positive thing. From my point of view, growing up, um, and I kind of delve into this I think it was all just kind of you know there, there was bullying at school like I, I had no clue I, I described this in the book but and and other people of African heritage that I spoke to not just 
through the course of doing Settlers, but, you know, throughout other interviews as a journalist, that this had been like a kind of muttered aside that, that a lot of people in the Black community were talking about, but wasn't really known outside of our kind of diaspora and our kind of our spaces and kind of those those kind of community spaces was that it was just like quite an established thing that that you know you you had this moment where you know I grew up very aware of how Nigerian we were we were like Nigerian in the sort of like most loud out and proud way imaginable but then you I went to school and you suddenly realize you you get told or you're informed by other people oh it's not a cool thing to be it's not a desirable thing to be you are associated with um I, I I always felt it I don't know if this is just something I realized in later life or something that I fully could articulate at the time it felt like you know an immigrant pecking order really like and I think there's 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 going to be various forms of that across all sorts of communities aren't there like that feeling of you are the recently arrived, uh, conspicuously foreign, you know, you don't get it kind of thing. Um, and that was my sense of it as a kid. And obviously you look around as well, and I delved a bit deeper into this. And just in terms of the culture, like, you know, it was, you know, it was famine, you know, what African heritage kind of was was allied with or represented. It was, you know, it was famine. It was, it was kind of, you know, finger wagging, um, overeducated adult students, like, you know, like kind of, you know, like I think of Desmond's, the uh, the great Channel Four sitcom. Um, and it was these kind of figures of fun, really. There wasn't, there wasn't cool. It was kind of, it was an undesirable thing. And I think because of the environment I grew up in, which was probably a predominantly, although it was you know, the black students in my school, South Asian students, it was kind of mixed. It was the edge of Southeast London. It was probably a predominantly white environment and growing up in a, in a kind of predominantly white culture when what was prized was assimilation, was blending in, was kind of, you know, sanding off those edges, like your kind of your ability to, to pass and to not be this kind of foreigner, as it were. And I think I was really aware of that kind of, kind of growing up and, and, I, I always feel that I kind of look at this in the book and I, it's it's been interesting to have these conversations and unpack it even further. I always felt that my culture and the African culture that I grew up in, our language, our food, our traditions was so kind of strong and so kind of there was no sense of me ever moving away from it it was such a kind of governing force in my life that I felt like I probably viewed it with too much ambivalence I don't think I was ever like fully like ashamed of it I was just like god this is there it's I'm not I don't question it like I don't think I'll ever lose that link to it so I probably didn't nurture it and I didn't have the interest or or curiosity that I then had in later years and I see kind of reflected in in the black British community now and and settlers really comes from that desire to to kind of know more and and unpack that route to a kind of um uh something that you wouldn't necessarily scream from the rooftops to something that that is a source of real pride now and and, and importance for so many people and and almost you know people that have lost those ancestral links have got Caribbean heritage and now far more interested in finding out more about, you know, their kind of culture and heritage, you know, before enslavement and their ancestry in that way. So, yeah, that's that's my own personal route and the route that I tried to map uh, throughout the book. 
have you found through your research that past generations maybe had a different relationship with identity coming to the UK compared to I guess technically we're like first generation I'm, I'm never mm. sure if we're first generation second generation <laughs> yeah. but have did you find that there's a difference yeah I think I think that there was always that slightly confusing thing and this is true in Caribbean culture as well and part of that Windrush generation of of um of Englishness or proximity to Englishness and facility with English language being prized and being able to to assimilate and pass being this thing that that I think even in my um even in my mum's kind of generation and before that and throughout the course of my research it, it did seem uh, and and obviously this is slightly colored by the fact that if we're talking about people of African heritage coming to the country, particularly in that post-war wave, a lot of them would have been, you know, upper class or upper to mid, uh, middle to upper class people, people of means that were able to travel. And, and also, you know, obviously one of the chapters looks at uh, education and, you know, the the number, not huge amounts, but significant um, Black Africans choosing to send their children to these private schools and I think that is kind of that strange judo of wanting to have the benefits of, of Englishness or being western or whiteness but also being very of your culture and so I feel like there was probably there was probably a lot more if we just hone in on that immediate post-war era, there was probably a lot more just like real pride and real kind of like, no, this is important. You can't disrespect us. And I looked at um, one of the really formative moments in that 20th century history of, of uh, African settlement in, Black African settlement in, in London, especially and in the UK is um, the, um, I think it was like the 1920s or 1930s and it's um, the empire, you know, the empire exhibition that celebrates like empire and all these, these, these black African students from what would become the West African students union, they protested the, the representation of African culture. There were all these stories in the lead up to, to that exhibition, which was up by Wembley and literally featured like living villages like you know peopled with with Nigerians that were specially like flown over and kind of recreated uh village life and with these living exhibits and there was a group of young students that were so incensed and so kind of uh, articulate enough because of their education their class to really put across the problem that they had with how their culture was being misrepresented and so I think probably there was, if you chart it across the century, there was like that real pride and that pushback that maybe, yeah, in my generation was kind of, you know, a lot more kind of went in its shell a little bit. And there was like, um, there was a lot more, you know, I, I literally speak to people in that chapter that talk about being in the closet effectively as, um, as, as Africans and kind of having different names, you know, as they, as they were at school and kind of saying that they were, oh, they were from Barbados or oh, they were from Jamaica or whatever. And I kind of think, you know, I, 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 uh, hopefully that chapter, I tease out the kind of comedy of that because it just feels like preposterous, but also show you why kind of, you know, people felt that, 
you know, like your your heritage and your culture put such a target on your back that you felt you needed to at least kind of conceal it. And that, I would say, is in stark contrast to, you know, let's say, you know, 70, 80 years earlier, African students literally fighting to kind of, you know, put forward the pride in their in their heritage and who they really are, who they really were, and correct the record really in the face of stereotypes and stigmas around what it was to be African and all these kind of accusations of cannibalism and whatever else was was going on at that time. Yeah, I I think it's really important as you mentioned, kind of like the class difference there, and I'd like to pick up on that because I think so much of the conversation around black communities in the UK a lot of the nuance gets lost and we're kind of spoken about as this monolith one of those like monolithic attributes that we're all given for example is that we're all working class but Nigerians in particular have a very um, specific or interesting relationship with class that uh, often gets overlooked when we're all assumed to be like from working class backgrounds so what impact do you think that British and Nigerian ideas of class have had on Black African communities in London, but also across the UK. Yeah, I think I think it's you know that that notion of of trying to uh, disseminate and pull apart this monolith. Uh, that's that was a real driver for this book, and kind of you know we've all felt that thing of feeling like you're denied individuality and in your your own situation is 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 not reflected in kind of you know what people speak about when they think of 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 uh black britons in relation to class especially um yeah i i think i was always just very keenly aware of it and and it was and it was linked uh, you know all the chapters are linked and they cover you know a variety of of subjects and i think that's no accident my mum's status as being middle class striving towards upper middle class was really linked to you know her religion her relationship to education and all these things that became the kind of the defining traits of our upbringing um as i said uh, you do tend to see around the time that that defining those defining arrivals of overseas students from from african nations around the 1950s especially happens that the class of those people and their supposed um you know their education and the fact they're coming here to like improve themselves that really filters into how black africans and especially west africans see themselves but what really fascinated me was that you know a lot of the tensions i think and a lot of the kind of the difficulties or the solutions that that black african settlers have come up with to life in diaspora in the UK and in cities like London comes from that feeling of feeling like you're one class or like you're one thing and arriving in a new country and being you know however many rungs lower down like the ladder um, than you expect and so there's this kind of glitch of status and like kind of people have this idea about who they are and I think it's a really interesting thing I don't know to what degree anyone really in the in the sort of black african culture that i grew up in would would articulate like a pride in being working class i think you know obviously people would probably do that in all sorts of different ways and kind of would just like live their lives but i just feel like 
particularly in Nigeria, in my experience, there's, you know, there's this huge, really ambitious, aspirational middle class. And you can you can live for all that for all that Nigeria is a, is a country with all manner of social challenges. It, you know, there is you know, there is this kind of there is this history of, you know, having domestic servants, having like a compound, having um, sending people to to private schools, like all these things that maybe in a different cultural environment are viewed of as, you know, uh, representative of high status or a certain class uh, accessible to a greater range of people. And so I think you arrive in this country and you have this sense of yourself and then you're you're not able to to live in that way and you're not regarded in that way and, and so much kind of of the um uh, so much difficulty kind of springs from that right and uh, i i think i think of like you know like my mum working mul multiple jobs and there was an interviewee in a uh, in settlers who uh was a mother of of uh a young man and a young woman who go to grammar school and she'd set them on this path the entire the family's entire life was set up around you know sending these kids on this path to grammar school and kind of giving them 11 plus kind of tutoring and kind of like really almost trying to get as close as possible to a private education without the fees like you know to really really you know work the system in that way and 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 she kind of literally said to me like you know where I'm from and how I kind of see myself I you know we come to this country and we're driving cabs where we're cleaning we're working we're doing like care care jobs and things like that but she was like but that's not how I that doesn't connect with the person that I was or that I feel that I still am you know in diaspora and that was a really interesting idea to me that I don't know if I really fully anticipated being such a big factor that this glitch in class is is such a huge fact of of you know so much of of what we what we see as kind of black african life in the uk and and yeah it's 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 such a huge thing you know like um um yeah particularly in nigerian communities this this notion of of class and um uh, respect and you know you only need to go to a a, a kind of traditional party or or you know engagement ceremony like a nigerian one and all the all the kind of intricacies of who gets served first and who sits where, like, you know, it's, it's class, but it is also this status obsessed uh, society and uh, that interacting with the chaos really of, of, and struggle of life in diaspora and the different forces that, that black families kind of came into contact with when they started to settle here more and more is you know is the reason for so much of what we see in in terms of uh black british life yeah absolutely i'm just thinking about those parties where you know the uncle will be introduced to speak and he's got a million different titles doctor chief etc etc before the name it is yeah. such a yeah it, it's just such a imprint i think yeah. of, uh, and, and of I life yeah and i and i think a lot of people just again this is just this is almost what i was what i was trying to do with the book maybe if i couldn't even fully articulate it right away is just you know all these things that we talk about that not just black african communities talk about but but probably apply to other immigrant communities and like um all the black british diaspora kind of talk about just been sort of lurking in the shadows and i just kind of wanted to like kind of 
let it out there really and just kind of let people and delve into it a little bit for for my own sake as much as other people's and you know little things like the um the the bow the deferent bow that you do in a in Nigerian like Yoruba culture like especially and I think actually I think of my mum and she like basically we wouldn't do the bow we wouldn't kind of do that so basically you you do this deferential bow to like an elder to kind of to to show your respect and to prostrate yourself before them but we never did that we never grew up doing that and I don't and I feel like again it's that question of how much of it is just the individual person raising you and how much of that is their kind of sense of self and social conditioning and class and stuff and that to itself seems interestingly tied to um like being having a western education or being seen as speaking properly or having kind of money or means or having your worldview broadened by travel and so yeah there's there's a whole there's a whole other book to be written on class to be honest <laughs> yeah definitely that is that feels like thesis material in and of <laughs> yeah. Itself. yeah but um, taking that aspirational um, kind of like theme, another way that this often translates in immigrant communities is around entrepreneurship and um, that as an almost hallmark and necessity of the immigrant experience. So could you speak a bit more to how entrepreneurship plays a role in Black African communities in London? Yeah, this this was another really sort of like rich um rich kind of part of the story that really always really just came from you know for as long as I've been alive like everyone around me every kind of family gathering has been you know uncles kind of loudly talking about their business plans and what they're gonna do and my mum's got a business that she wants to get going and kind of and and you know and that was just kind of enriched by having more conversations with people Again, in that classroom chapter, I spoke to, uh, you know, she's essentially a an educator or like a after school club entrepreneur who, you know, was training to be a barrister. But she said to me, oh, and she started this whole entire business um, to to effectively offer after school teaching and tutoring services to predominantly black African children like looking to get into grammar schools or improve their their grades and she just said to me look we 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 had we had more than enough like her and her husband like you know they they kind of were, were earning more than enough but to her she was like you know we as people she was saying speaking of Nigerians are just entrepreneurial we kind of want to we want to, we want more, we want to kind of, you know, like get on, we want to strive, we want to reach some next level. And I think the thing that I really hit upon that, that interests me was also within that. And again, this applies across all sorts of different communities is that that, that need to be your own boss, that need for agency comes from wanting to, get some power in a in a world and in a and in a situation where you 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 know repeatedly feel powerless and like you want to um and I think that is like a big drive of it and and actually you could say that 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 focus and that kind of head down attitude that's very prevalent in in black African especially West African communities you know leads to to all sorts of 
um, you know, slightly kind of damaging or like you hold yourself back in, in, in strange ways because, you know, you're not really noticing like any kind of um, societal obstacles that you're facing. You're so kind of eyes on the prize. And that that really interested me, like that, that there was this kind of self-starting um, uh, culture that was kind of, you know, really, really enshrined. Um, and, and then I guess the flip side of that, which I explore in the market chapter is, you know, there is entrepreneurship and there is this kind of hustle that that we all kind of grow up quite steeped in. Uh, and it's funny, just as an aside, because I, me and my brothers will talk about, you know, feeling like we're quite separate from this. But then we look around like me and my cousins that are my age, and my older brother, and almost all of us are freelance or self-employed. So it's interesting that it manifests. You think like, oh, my God, like you're joking about your your uncles and their crackpot schemes. And then you've effectively become them. But um, but yeah, I uh, the other the flip side of that that came out in the market chapter um, where I look at, you know, the sort of battle for produce um, uh, to, to kind of find those tropical foodstuffs and ingredients, but also th that sense of home and like kind of represented in markets like Ridley Road and Brixton and Peckham and places like that. And and the thing that I really realised through that is that it's about entrepreneurship. It's about making money. It's about turning something or the cultural insight that's maybe a disadvantage in in the world in the english world in the western world you know things like your accent your you know your facility with english your your kind of your um the fact that you're accustomed to a way of life that is different flipping that round and turning that into a benefit and also that those being really important businesses and spaces for the community and so they they're kind of it, it's really interesting to me that there is that kind of quite focused hustle you know eyes on the prize like self-starting thing that's quite individualistic but really when you look at like the shopkeepers that I was that I was interviewing and speaking to even people that that run restaurants even whether it's you know the way that Pentecostal churches interact with entrepreneurship really in our examples of successful businesses it it serves the community in a broader way like in it kind of that that entrepreneurship starts to to have a collective benefit as well mm. and I think it's impossible to speak about black African communities in the UK in London in particular and not talk about gentrification because it really mm. is just changing the dynamics of communities and as land becomes more expensive and people are like having to move and shift mm. all over the place basically but what role do places like restaurants and places of worship and even shops as you've mentioned what role do these like community spaces play in bringing people together and fostering a community in a city that is just growing increasingly expensive and harder to do so yeah the 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 role is huge like as I as I say there there is uh, although these things are are individual uh, are individual businesses they are these kind of really vitally important collective endeavors as well and you know it's it's really it's really interesting to me that like so much of my life and this is probably tied to that kind of you know 
I, I almost want to say like resentful attitude to kind of the specificities of your culture, like being dragged to the, the complete other side of Southeast London alongside my mum to get a specific cut of meat from a butcher that knows the way she wants it because she has it like she had it like that back home or to get yams or to get plantains and or, or me in a more individual way having to go from like you know my my sort of home on the edge of Kent like all the way across to like South London to go to my barber but then you realize that in the same way as I go to my barber you know I would go to my childhood barber for a, not just a specific way of cutting my hair but a specific interaction a specific environment a culture and a community belonging to something that was that I probably couldn't put a name to but was like vitally important you know these these spaces fill you up in a way that that you can't really you can't really measure to be honest and and that's true of shops that's true of restaurants that serve a community but then the flip side as you say with gentrification is that um they're individuals like I was saying previously you know what what they do is is meaningful and really important and I really saw it with um when I was uh you know in these shops and talking to these shopkeepers and seeing the way that people go in there and they you know they they interact in their native language they spot those those kind of familiar labels they they kind of they ask for favors they ask someone to help them with something like you know one shopkeeper is like you know he's giving out you know recipes for potato leaf stew like in in between sort of telling a woman that she can't haggle the price so they're these kind of really important um, vectors for for this way of being but it's just one person right and a lot of the time these people and again this is really true of all sorts of different immigrant diasporas and communities these people do these jobs so that their children and the younger generation don't have to and so that that connection and and that space becomes jeopardized doesn't it because um the, you know because of gentrification and kind of places that were once undesirable now not necessarily having the space for for um for a lot of these places and and it just being like a full-time battle to protect these spaces and to enter in these fights and stuff it's really interesting to me that the fight in places like Ridley Road, say there was the very successful Save Ridley Road campaign. There was a, a, a linked, equally successful campaign to save the Latin village in London. Um, and they were really being spearheaded by, by younger kind of activists or people kind of outside the community. Like a lot of the traders didn't have the tools or the language or, or even, I don't know, that that sense of stake in it that they kind of you know could fight back properly so that was quite interesting in itself and yeah gentrification I think I obviously touch on it but I touch on it I touch on it from a commercial point of view and looking at market spaces and restaurants and churches and those kind of places and their kind of fight to find a home and find the accessing the accessing of space really but there's a whole other story with housing isn't there because it's like you know you can walk to Peckham now and think oh you know what's the big deal this still feels like Peckham but then the point is generations can't put down roots there and you know the housing isn't accessible and so that makes everything ever more difficult uh, the final point i'll make on top of that though is you know the chapter that looks at housing suburb and this goes back to that point of class and and maybe being um attributed with with 
I don't know, desires or characteristics that you don't feel reflect who you really are. So many people ended up living in tower blocks or these kind of quite close knit, like inner London communities, just by necessity, because there was nowhere else to get. And it was really interesting to look at that drift out to the suburbs, which is obviously linked to schooling, but also a lot of the a lot of the kind of um, black African communities that were surveyed or polled or people that I interviewed were saying we want space, we want like a big garden, like you know we've had this this uh, almost like uh, geographic identity put on us that are oh, we we identify with this area, but actually you know it's it's kind of striking how a lot of these communities and, and i'm speaking of like immigrant diasporas and maybe like lower income communities identify a lot more with like say a retail park uh, a, a lovely school nearby that's high rated and going to give your children good opportunities a big garden than they do with you know the the traditional kind of um hubs of 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 kind of uh black african culture and that immigrant experience in like london and so that's another interesting little wrinkle to it that that i came across yeah that yeah that's really interesting actually um yeah no i've never thought of it like that but it's mm. true yeah i i, I it's just one of those things and i again one of the really one of the great sort of accidental gifts of this book was I just had all these conversations with people through the purpose of doing the book but you just kind of learn so much and conversations with my mum as well and and this this is directly linked to her sense of who she was and like and and self and class that she chose to to move us to you know a suburb like you know effectively like kind of right at the edge of of like southeast london where we were like conspicuous like we were absolutely i think we were one of two black families on a very long street and we were like very much the only um west african or black african family and she did that with that you know with that kind of singular vision of like oh you know you, uh, m- what's more important to me is space and good schools and like I'm not going to be like you know that you know she just took that decision and obviously then that has all sorts of ramifications for like me and my siblings and other people that grow up in that situation but then that speaks to this idea of having this sense of not being dictated to in terms of and and just that kind of constant tussle between what you feel deserving of and what the society you're in sort of feels that you're deserving of as well so that was really interesting to hear that from her and it made me yeah it made me rethink a lot of uh, you know it's not it's not straightforward is it because there's so much uh there's so much cultural importance in places of significance like Brixton or Peckham and you know so many people will be like this is our home and it's meaningful because of that long lineage but then there'll be a lot of people that that don't feel attached to it and probably have you know some of the you know you know that that is what makes gentrification this tricky proposition as well right and why we kind of need to keep talking about it and sort of educating ourselves as well because I yeah I admit that I sort of need to like delve bit deeper into it as well yeah and I think another aspect which isn't straightforward but which I like the way that you kind of approached it because I think it's something that we're not we don't talk about enough is the fact that a lot of 
Africans grow up in very like culturally conservative mm. um, like households where education and respect mm. for authority are kind of like these pillars of yeah. our upbringing. But yeah. then when we encounter um, the world, the Western <laughs> world, and then you've got the complication of like structural racism. So yeah. these ideas yeah. of education and justice and police and authority yeah. it all gets a little bit messy especially when you've got parents who've grown up in black majority countries so they don't yeah. even necessarily have a concept of what structural yeah. racism is yeah. so can yeah. you speak a bit about that kind of like relationship um within black african communities yeah yeah i think it's a really really important point and you make a good point about their upbringing being in a majority black environment like i was really conscious like uh, or or increasingly conscious after finishing the book that obviously my view of of the themes I write about in Settlers what it is to be black African and British is so shaped by growing up in a white environment like you know the uh, people that you know I'm, I'm thinking of like Edward Edinfall's book where he comes to the country as a refugee at 13 and his his interaction and uh, sort of feeling towards the UK is so different to mine, say, like being born here, like coming from that black majority environment. But but yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, culturally conservative is absolutely right. Like another thing that I, it was another thing that I kind of checked in with my mum about again. And, and she kind of had this attitude of, which I definitely recognised from, from being younger and in other kind of, you know, middle-class driving aspirant uh black african families of you know racism's there you just focus on it you know that that thing that old chestnut that that so many people from immigrant uh families and people of color will have heard where it's like oh you have to work twice as hard to like you know get half as far and kind of that notion and i kind of i have sympathy for that because as you say they were coming from a completely different environment they didn't really realize I think fully like what they were up against and I think there was that feeling of like there's there's nothing you can do about fixing it so the roots is you know you just need to be like successful enough that that I don't know it's probably quite an individualistic way of looking at it and what really interested me and this goes back to that point about I feel like we're gaining so much right now from um uh solidarity and collectivism not just between black caribbean and black african uh, communities but like all kind of like immigrant communities and kind of almost like comparing notes in a really great way because i think what my what my parents generation and, and a lot of the people like that like didn't really appreciate was what the the caribbean community had been through like particularly in terms of education particularly in interactions with the police and i think you know the the mistake and and i definitely i it was it was definitely a lesson that i you know either subconsciously like absorbed or was literally told was that you know there's a way to be where you won't be uh, you know the police won't see you there won't be an issue head down focus on you know things racism's there but there's nothing you can do about it and and it was an it was a real realization for me doing the book to realize like wow like I've probably gained as a person from that kind of bulletproof attitude of not really feeling not really kind of second guessing in that way in terms of institutional 
um, uh, disadvantage and things like that. And I've probably kind of just been able to to kind of move into spaces and 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 act as if I have every right to be there. But then equally, you think, God, well, like what you've also sort of lost from like holding on to those things or keeping your head down or trying to block things out or trying to kind of contort yourself to 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 um, to to help navigate something that isn't. That, that is unfair through no fault of your own right and so you're kind of you're almost kind of playing by these by, by the rules of this rigged game aren't you and so that that was something that I kind of came across quite a lot and I and I look I, I think there's always going to be that that kind of conservatism like particularly in like West African cultures and like middle class cultures and we see it manifest now through um various debates about um to what extent uh politicians of of color in the conservative party are to be you know celebrated as wins for representation without any kind of recourse given to 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 how how diverse they are in terms of class upbringing and outlook right and this kind of is the the flip side of that coin where we're playing to to not be a monolith but I, I do think that that it that it's a fascinating part of this story that yeah there has been that that social cultural conservatism and one thing that I was really interested in was to what extent can you can you hold both things in your hand at the same time do you know what I mean to what extent can you be proud of this ancestry and this culture and this heritage that you come from that that really helps you understand who you are and to what extent can you kind of take on the influences of um the western world and diaspora and kind of being kind of pr progressive and and open and sort of you know um honest with yourself in terms of like your emotions and your mental health and things like that and kind of move forward in that way and i think that that is the that is the thing that I'm encouraged by seeing. And I just hope we see more of really that kind of, because I, I, I think maybe a flip side of that, those feelings of ambivalence towards my own like African heritage and culture when I was like a teenager and growing up quite apart from what was being said about it and bullying and things like that was probably like, you feel like that culture is, is owned in some way by your parents' generation and the older generation. And maybe you associate it. I've seen people talk about this. You, you associate certain characteristics or things that you're not happy about with that culture. And so you become, you know, like a little bit like, oh, like, you know, you feel like you can't claim it for yourself. And what I've seen and what Settlers hopefully pays tribute to is people reclaiming it and claiming it for themselves and, and sort of managing to be, uh, take both pride in that tradition, but also kind of move forward and uh, have a kind of modern sensibility mm, I think this is a great time to kind of ask the the big picture question what do you think the future of black African London might look like given all the ev evolutions across culture and community what do you think it might look like in the future uh, yeah it's, it's a really really it's a really good question and I think uh, one of the things that I you know, I I kind of am an optimist. I think, as I say more than once in the book, because you kind of have because I feel like I have to be because I'll just kind of give in otherwise. But one of the the things that I hadn't really anticipated was obviously the the difficulty in 
in uh, in coming to this country. Like, you know, it's got harder and harder and, and that, um, you know, post-Brexit, like there's all sorts of really crazy figures in terms of like, you know, the number of visas that are turned down from people in like black African countries. And and so I think you have to acknowledge that that it's, you know, it's going to, you're maybe not going to see the same wave of, of migration or it's going to be harder and harder to, to have those similar waves again. Um, but but I feel like what's what the future of it probably holds is that it just gets increasingly it just permeates the culture even more because I feel like now I, I really wanted to shine a light on this culture in this world but I feel like you know there's so much more and I'm seeing not just manifesting in music and film but but all across the board like more interest in other African nations and, and different cultures and things like that. And I think that thing, if we go back to that that point about what was held against, um, you know, the those of African heritage, particularly in the 90s and like the 80s of, of being these recent arrivals, like there has been such a kind of growth and permeation of the culture. And I think that as Black Africans become more British, hopefully they will continue to hold on to those kind of those sides of themselves. And you can see it in the fact that if we just talk about Black African London, as I hint at in the book, that that exists outside of London now like you know like Black African London is kind of like you know Milton Keynes almost now like you know there's so many figures around uh, you know drift out to the suburbs like kind of uh, people kind of it just becoming this part of British culture really and I think and I hope that that will continue and continue on its own terms as well like not not in a mode of kind of assimilation or you know becoming you know sloughing off those like edges and the things that 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 make people African however they define that but in sort of being itself but also part of that greater whole as I call it and you know black Britishness being you know uh, black African culture and black Caribbean culture and all those things at once and just that that rich tapestry carrying on really so yeah that's my hope but who knows a lovely optimistic hope to end <laughs> uh, thank you so much Jimmy it has been great I really enjoyed our conversation oh, me too thank you Jimmy's new book, Settlers, is out now. The RSA have provided a discount code for anyone buying the book through FOILS. The code is FOILSRSA20, and both the code and the link will be appearing in the live chat right now. But thank you to everyone who's tuned in and thank you to the RSA for hosting this event. And if you'd like to learn more about the work of the RSA and how to get involved in their global fellowship community, you can visit the RSA.org. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.